I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. The Brain Science Podcast is part of sciencepodcasters.org, the website where you can find high-quality science podcasts from a wide variety of fields. This is episode 66 of the Brain Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. My guest today is Dr. Randy Gallistell from Rutgers University. We'll be talking about his book, Memory and the Computational Brain, Why Cognitive Science Will Transform Neuroscience. Detailed show notes and transcripts are available at our website, where you can also purchase the premium version of this episode, which is free of interruptions by advertisements and announcements. Just go to brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at docartemis at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Brain Science Podcast. This is actually my 100th podcast if you count the 34 episodes of my other podcast, Books and Ideas. I want to thank those of you who have taken the time to send me feedback, and also I want to give a special shout-out to Jason Rennie of The Sci-Fi Show. The review of the book on intelligence that I did back in Episode 2 was originally recorded for Jason's podcast. That experience inspired me to start the Brain Science Podcast. Thanks, Jason. I also want to give a shout-out to a few other podcasters who inspired me to get started, including Mer Lafferty, Leo Laporte, and Derek and Swoopy from Skepticality. When I started the Brain Science Podcast in 2006, my goal was to create what podcasters like to call evergreen content. Based on the emails I get every day from new listeners, I think I have succeeded. It seems that most new listeners go back and start listening at episode one and try to listen to all the episodes in order. Obviously, that is becoming quite a project, and for the most part, I am trying to encourage new listeners to listen to current episodes as they go along. Today's episode represents a couple of firsts. Because this show's audience ranges from high school students to working neuroscientists, I work very hard to vary the content between fairly technical episodes and those that are more accessible to non-scientists. This is the first time that I have aired two highly technical episodes in a row, which is one reason why I did insert the Bruce Hood interview from Books and Ideas into last month's feed. I only mention this because I want you to know that this was not intentional and it does not represent a trend. It is ironic that my 100th podcast represents the first time I have lost an interview and had to re-record it. 
Dr. Galstow was very gracious about this, but I have to take full responsibility for any shortcomings in this final version. One thing that was lost was our discussion of how the book was written, so I must take a moment to mention that Memory in the Computational Brain was a collaboration between Randy Galstow and computer scientist Adam King. It's been a while since we talked about Memory on the Brain Science Podcast. And today we are going to talk about memory from the standpoint of computation, which might sound esoteric, but it turns out to be an essential feature of what our brain does. As I mentioned earlier, this is a fairly technical discussion. I covered the basic ideas about memory back in episode 3 and episode 12. Those episodes should give you all the background or review you need to appreciate the key ideas in today's episode. Galistel and King's book begins with an extensive introduction to computation and information theory, with an emphasis on why these are important to understanding how the brain works. The key idea is that in order to do what it does, the brain must possess something called read-write memory. The second half of the book presents some real-life examples that support this argument. In this interview, we tried to highlight the minimum number of principles needed to appreciate the experimental data. Then we talk about the navigational abilities of ants and the incredible memory feats of scrub jays. If you want to hear about the experiments first, you can skip ahead to the second half of the interview, but without the preliminary discussion, you might find it difficult to appreciate why Dr. Galstill is arguing that we need an entirely new model for how memory works, which is the real point of this episode. After the interview, I will be back to review the main ideas and to tell you about upcoming episodes. My guest today is Dr. Randy Galstell, co-author of Memory and the Computational Brain, Why Cognitive Science Will Transform Neuroscience. Randy, I'm really glad to have you on the show today, and I especially want to apologize and thank you for doing this interview again. That's no problem, Ginger. It makes me think about the many times when I've blown it in one way or another. I wanted to start out by telling you that I think your book is one of the most provocative books that I read in the last year. But before we get into our discussion, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about yourself in terms of your background and your work. I'm a behavioral neuroscientist and cognitive neuroscientist. I was trained in behavioral neuroscience, which in those days they called physiological psychology, at Yale in the 1960s. And I've been at the University of Pennsylvania for many years. And then my wife and I, Rochelle Gelman, moved to UCLA in the beginning of the 1990s. And then in in 2000, we moved to Rutgers, where we are co-directors of the Rutgers Center for Cognitive Science. My laboratory these days works on behavioral screens for genetically manipulated mice, looking for genetic, that is, heritable malfunctions in basic mechanisms of cognition and most particularly in memory. So memory has really been something you've been working on all of your career? Memory has been what I've worked on in my entire career. 
you wouldn't necessarily know that from looking at it. For many years, I worked on brain stimulation reward, the psychophysics of brain stimulation reward, and the neuroanatomy and the neurophysiology of it. And behind all of that was the idea that we could use brain stimulation reward to find the mechanism, the cellular mechanism of memory, because with brain stimulation reward, you produce a memory by directly stimulating the nervous system. And I still think that was a very good idea, but it did not lead us to the mechanism of memory as I had hoped it would. The neuroanatomy of the system proved to be extremely puzzling. And because I wasn't trained as a neuroanatomist, I decided I had to give that up. At that point, I said, well, what other line of attack could one use? And I decided that the genetic line of attack was the only one that showed promise of delivering results in what I now refer to as my remaining years of sentience as I get older. So you would consider your work and Eric Kandel's work to be complementary? Yeah, well, we're both, uh, the work is, in both cases, the goal is to determine the molecular or the cellular and molecular mechanism of memory, the physical mechanism of memory. I wouldn't say necessarily they're complementary, but they're different approaches to the same problem. Both of you relying on your own particular strengths. That's right. Before we get into the meat of our conversation, I have to ask you a question about your book's title, Memory and the Computational Brain, Why Cognitive Science Will Transform Neuroscience. What's the difference between cognitive science and neuroscience? The book is in many ways about that difference, about the conceptual gap that separates cognitive science from neuroscience and about what is required to bridge that gap. Cognitive science is concerned with the computational theory of mind, and it elaborates computational theories of both what goes on in the brains of humans and animals and in autonomous robots, for example, in computer science, and in machine translation, say, or machine text comprehension in computational linguistics. So it's the coming together of the four disciplines that are most essentially concerned with the nature of mind and brain, namely psychology, linguistics, philosophy, and computer science, and those elements of each one of those disciplines that are interested in computational theories of mind. So I think I more or less finished answering what cognitive science is about. Now, neuroscience is, of course, about the brain and behavior. Behavioral neuroscience is about how processes, mechanisms in the brain produce the behavior that we observe. Neuroscience has not traditionally been computationally oriented, although there is now a flourishing branch of neuroscience called computational neuroscience. The central claim of cognitive science is that you need a computational level of analysis in order to understand how the mind or the brain works. And uh, in order to bridge the gap between cognitive science and neuroscience, you need to understand how the brain computes, how processes in the brain compute. And the book argues that the absolute core of that question is the question of memory. And it explains why a certain kind of memory mechanism, namely a read-write memory, plays a fundamental role in computation. And that no 
powerful computational device can exist without a read-write memory. The central claim of the book is that that's the case and that therefore neuroscience has to find what that mechanism is, what the mechanism of a read-write memory is. And that really challenges several current assumptions about how the brain works, especially how memory works, doesn't it? It does. The standard view in neuroscience, and this has been true ever since I was a graduate student, ever since long before I was a graduate student, basically this has been the received view for more than a century now, is that memory must involve a change in synaptic connectivity that the way in which experience changes behavior is by rewiring the brain. A very popular term for memory these days in neuroscience is plasticity, emphasizing the fact, or the hypothesis, I should say, because the book really challenges this idea, that the way in which experience alters behavior is by rewiring the brain. So that on this story, the memories reside in the altered connections that experience has produced within the brain. You're not challenging the fact that there's evidence that the synapses change. You're just challenging that this can fully explain what's going on. Yes, very much so. There is, of course, evidence that synapses change, though the functional significance of that change is far from clear. For example, we know that synaptic connectivity changes in the retina when the retina dark adapts. We know that the horizontal and amacron cells in the retina that mediate synaptic connectivity within the retina change during dark adaptation, but no one would conceptualize that change in synaptic connectivity as learning. So there is indeed considerable evidence that synaptic connectivity changes. In fact, it can change on an extremely rapid timescale. But the question is, is it a change in synaptic connectivity that stores the information that the animal extracts from its experience and that it carries forward in its brain in order to inform its subsequent behavior? And the evidence that that kind of memory, which is the memory that the book is concerned with, depends on uh, changes in synaptic connectivity. That evidence is weak. Okay, so that's a good jumping off point. Your book builds its arguments very methodically by presenting all the key concepts of information theory and computation before talking about what the brain can do in real life. And obviously, we don't have time to do that today. But perhaps you might talk about a few key ideas that we need before we start talking about real-life examples, because I want to focus on the experimental evidence, but I know we need a little background. Yes. One of the central points of the book is that the information that we've extracted from our experience and that obviously informs our behavior comes in at different times. That is, almost any behavioral act that is informed by our past experience, if you look into it, it's informed by elements of that past experience that happened at very different times. Some things may have happened years ago. Some things may have happened weeks ago. Some things may have happened only a minute or even a few seconds ago. But all those things come together to inform our behavior at the moment. That's why you need a mechanism that carries this information 
forward in time in a way that allows information that has been acquired at different times to come together at a given moment in time in order to structure and inform our behavior. Now, there's no inherent mystery about such a memory. That's exactly the kind of memory that one finds in a conventional computer, a so-called random access read-write memory. That kind of memory, a read-write memory, has been central to the design of computing machines from the very beginning. It was a fundamental part of Turing's conception of what the essence of a computing machine had to be, and it's been a fundamental part of the design of computers since the 1940s when we first began to have physically realized computing machines. And there isn't the faintest proposal to change that aspect of the architecture of a computing machine in modern computer science. That is, computer scientists are very clear that this is an essential feature of the architecture. And so the book says, well, in effect, look, neuroscientists are saying that here we have this very powerful computing device, brains. There's a lot of agreement that uh, brains are in some sense computing and that they're solving very complex and difficult computational problems. And yet, on the standard story, this device lacks this central feature of computing machines as understood by computer scientists, namely a read-write memory. So then we set out to explain why, in as basic and elementary terms as we can, why this read-write memory is so essential. I think the essence, perhaps the most important thing to stress, is that computations, let's take just simple arithmetic computations, let's strip computation to its simplest terms. Addition, right? What's involved in addition? Well, you take one number and you take another number and you get them both from memory and you bring them to the, a component of the machine that has been structured so that it can perform the addition operation and it performs the addition operation using these two numbers that have been brought to it from memory. And then the result, the sum, which is produced by this piece of the machinery, is returned to memory where it can be summoned again when it is required in some further computation. We make the basic point that this is a model for all of computation. This is what Fodor and Polition, for example, and many others have referred to as the essence of compositionality, that is the ability of computing devices to put things together, to put symbols together. And we point out that the two things that need to be put together, the two numbers in this case, cannot, as a general rule, reside together, physically speaking, in memory. There has to be a physical realization of these symbols, and the physical realizations of the two different symbols cannot, as a general rule, they may in particular occasions reside physically next to each other somewhere, but obviously, as a general rule, from basic geometry and physics, you can't have a million different things, all of which are adjacent or physically next to each other. Even less can you have these two things that need to be combined, that need to enter into this computational operation 
both next to each other and at the same place in space and time as the machinery that is capable of combining them. So those three elements, the machinery that is capable of combining them and the two things that need to be combined cannot be, as a general rule, at any given moment at the same place in space and time. It's that that dictates the basic design of a modern computing machine in which you have machinery capable of effecting the combination of performing the addition in one location, and you have the things, the physical realization of the symbols that are to be combined in a memory. And they are brought from the memory to the computing core and operated on, and then the results are returned to memory. That's the central feature of the architecture of a computing device. And for reasons I hope I've just made clear, we argue that that design is dictated by the fundamental logic of the problem, that there's no way of getting around that design. One of the unique features of your book is that you have some physical realizations of these principles that aren't electronic computers. There are physical realizations that sort of demonstrate the fact that it's a physical requirement, but it's not something about electronics. Yes, we're very concerned in the book to try to demystify computation, that is to bridge the conceptual gap between computation as a symbolic activity, say, conducted with a paper and pencil or conducted verbally, and computation as a physically realized process. That's, of course, what computer science has done for us in the century that's just passed. It bridged what historically, philosophically, had been a huge gap between computation, which always seemed to be an intrinsically mental or non-physical activity, and physically realized processes. We think that many contemporary students who are interested in, say, computational neuroscience lack an understanding of how, or a deep understanding of how it is that computation is physically realized. The trouble is these days, of course, it's realized electronically. Electronics itself can be a bit mysterious. So we're trying to get readers of the book to understand that, look, electronics is just another way of physically implementing the following logically described processes. And so we use mostly mechanical models, marble machines, and so on, because we think they're more accessible to physical intuition. And then we say, well, look, if you understand that, then the computer just does basically the same thing, but using transistors rather than these mechanical teeter-totters that are more accessible to our physical intuition. The Brain Science Podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, which is a great place to get audiobook downloads. New members can get a free audiobook download by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science. This month's book is not available on Audible, but The Ego Tunnel by Thomas Metzinger is. I recommend this book since Dr. Metzinger will be next month's guest. If 
before we start talking about some of the experimental examples, do we need to say anything else about the definition of information? Ah, yes, about information itself. Of course, we're also very concerned to give students an understanding of what the modern mathematical definition of information is, because when we say that memory carries information forward in time, we mean information not in some obscure, mysterious sense, but information in the rigorous sense that it was given by the work of Claude Shannon. So one does need to understand what information is in that rigorous sense. And the, the book, of course, opens with a chapter that's basically just a lengthy gloss on Claude Shannon. To, as you said in your opening remarks, the first half of the book really could be described as basic computer scientists for a neuroscientific and philosophical cognitive science audience. That is, we're trying to explain some of the basics of contemporary computer science. And of course, the notion of information, Shannon's notion of information is absolutely central. I don't know whether it makes sense for me to try to elaborate in this interview. I don't think I can even do a definition after having read your book a couple of times, but the thing that I came away with that perhaps might be worth sharing is, and you can elaborate on this, is the concept that the receiver of the information has to have some expectation about what kind of information they're going to receive. I mean, you can't just sit there and get information as some vague thing. You have to have some expectations. Yes. And then the signal you receive changes your expectations. Yes, exactly. Yes, I can elaborate a bit upon that. Shannon was, of course, an engineer for Bell Labs. Well, applied mathematician at Bell Labs. He wanted to place the engineer's understanding of the process of communication on a firm mathematical foundation. He stressed the fact that in any communication system, and of course, you can view the brain versus the world as a communication system. In order for the brain to deal effectively with the environment, messages have to pass from the environment, from the world that surrounds the brain, into the brain. And it's exactly that that makes Shannon's analysis of the communication process relevant. Shannon said, look, all communication presupposes that there's a set of possible messages, and the receiver has to know what the set, at least implicitly in the structure of the receiver, has to be knowledge of what the set of possible messages could be. Moreover, the receiver has to have, again, at least implicitly, a probability distribution over the set of possible messages. So what does this mean in practical brain world interpretation? Well, suppose your brain is judging the distance between yourself and the car ahead of you when you're driving a car. This is a real world variable and the possible values of that variable, the possible distances, constitute in Shannon's sense a set of possible messages. Point is that you must have in your brain not only the apparatus that can represent the different distances, but a probability distribution of some kind over that set of possible distances. Because when you get signals from your eyes, 
that contain information about what that distance actually is, what those signals do in Shannon's terms is change that probability distribution. They narrow the probability distribution. And that was the essence of Shannon's theory of information, is that the amount of information that was communicated to your brain by those signals could be measured by the narrowing of the probability distribution over the set of possible messages. So there was inherent a certain subjectivity in Shannon's theory of communication. One of the things we stress is that it's very important to appreciate that subjectivity. I can't resist adding that you'll find exactly the same stress in a wonderful book for neuroscientists, computationally oriented neuroscientists. I'm not sure I can summon from memory all the authors. Rika, R-I-E-K-E, was the first author, and Van Stevenick was another author, and Bialik, B-I-A-L-E-K, was another author, called Spikes, Explorations of the Neural Code. And this book focuses on the question of how do spike trains, how do the sequences of action potentials convey information in the nervous system? And they too rely strongly on Shannon's theory and the modern theory of information. And they too stress this fact that I've just been attempting to explain and that you asked about, namely that in order for communication to exist in Shannon's terms, that is, in order to bring information theory to bear, on our understanding of what goes on in the brain, you have to assume that the brain has not only the physical resources to represent the set of possible messages, but it must also have a probability distribution over that set of possible messages. Right, because for one thing, we never get any direct information. I mean, everything is in signals. A spike train is the generally assumed one those in them of themselves, they aren't distance, they aren't color. Exactly. They're just spike trains. When I teach undergraduates, it's so hard to get them to grasp that, to grasp the fact that, look, the only thing the brain gets are these sequences of neural impulses. And as you just said, that sequence of neural impulses, it isn't a distance, it isn't a color, it's just a signal. And to extract a representation of the world that produced that spike train. To extract from that spike train requires computation. It's really there that the modern computational theory of mind arises. I want to stress that the brain is computing has been widely embraced by at least that part of the neuroscience community that's concerned with how the brain produces behavior. The idea that the brain computes, it's somewhat controversial, but it's very widely accepted, both within neuroscience and within cognitive science. It's really the founding idea for cognitive science. What our book is arguing is that, yes, the brain does compute, and a read-write memory plays a central role in computation. So if we're going to understand it neuroscientifically, we're going to have to find the neural basis of that read-brain memory. Right. Are you ready to go on now to some examples? Sure. Because I think that in reading your book, one would get the basic principles in the first half, 
But what really is convincing from a standpoint of the neuroscience is the experimental data, at least to me. And I want to start out by talking about the example of dead reckoning, which you spend quite a bit of time on in the book. Indeed, indeed. I've been calling this example forcefully to the attention of the neuroscientific community now for some years. To me, it is indeed the central behavioral phenomenon that people should focus on if they're interested in the neurobiology of computation. One important thing is that it's not remotely controversial at the behavioral level. That is, there's a large community that studies animal navigation, and that community has complete consensus that the process of dead reckoning plays a central role in animal navigation at every level of animals. The most beautiful data on dead reckoning come from the study of navigation in insects by uh, workers like Rudiger Weiner in Switzerland and Tom Collett in England. So there's complete agreement that dead reckoning occurs. Would you define? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I haven't. So dead reckoning is the process of keeping track of where you are by adding up your changes, your small changes in position. When Columbus was making his way across the Atlantic Ocean, he was, of course, keeping track of where he was in relation to Spain and known world that is known to Europeans. And he was doing so largely by dead reckoning. Basically, he was sailing due west, and he knew approximately how fast his boat went under various conditions. The basic process, particularly in his case, was pretty simple. Your boat is sailing due west at five nautical miles per hour, something like that. They're 24 hours in the day, so at the end of 24 hours, at the end of each day, you're approximately 5 times 24 or 120 nautical miles west of where you were before. And so you take a ruler and you plot off that distance on the map and you make a little dot and say, okay, here's my estimate of where I am. Now, if you change your course and you start sailing at an angle, say, northwest instead of just due west, a little trigonometry comes into it. But it's basically a simple operation. You decompose your motion into two independent, that is, orthogonal components, and you keep a two-column running sum of how much you've progressed north or south and how much you've progressed east or west. And the mathematical description of this is just you're integrating your velocity with respect to time. So... That's what dead reckoning is. It's the integration of velocity with respect to time. And it reflects the analytic fact that anyone who's ever studied the calculus has learned, though they may have forgotten it, but it's usually the central example when you're introduced to the calculus, is that your position vector, that is your position, your latitude and longitude, is the integral of your velocity vector, that is how fast you're moving north and south and east and west, sort of the etch-a-sketch principle. So that's what dead reckoning is. The second really important thing is that dead reckoning is not a computational mystery. 
We understand dead reckoning, or at least we certainly think we understand dead reckoning, and we implement it in virtually all autonomous robots, for example. And in modern air and ship navigation, they all implement dead reckoning. It's not a computational mystery, unlike many other aspects of behavior, how we parse the visual scene into objects or how we parse speech into its components. Those are not computationally well understood. Those are very difficult problems. But dead reckoning is computationally well understood. So that's the second reason that it's important. And the third reason that it's important in our argument is that it beautifully illustrates what we mean by carrying information forward in time in a computationally accessible form. Because what are you doing when you're doing dead reckoning? Well, you're accumulating hour by hour or minute by minute or second by second information that is available to you in the form of brain signals that indicate your velocity, your speed. Returning to what you said a moment ago, what are you getting? Well, you're getting spike trains that convey information about the world. Well, what information do they convey? Well, no spike train conveys information about your position directly, at least when you're sailing on the open ocean. But they do convey information about your velocity how fast you're traveling. Any person who has spent any amount of time sailing has some notion of how fast the boat is moving at any given time. There are many signals that indicate roughly how rapidly the boat is moving. That information which comes in over time, you have to combine the information that you got today with the information that you got yesterday. You have to combine the information that you got in the last hour with the information that you got 20 days ago. I'm returning to Columbus's example. We'll be right back after a short break to talk about how animals as simple as ants are able to perform dead reckoning. And we know that animals as simple as ants do definitely do dead reckoning, right? We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's a large literature on it, and it's not controversial. No one questions it. So it doesn't even take a complex brain to do dead reckoning. That's right. The brain of an ant, well, it varies with species, of course. For the cataglyphus bicolor, the ant for which we have the most extensive uh, navigational data, the brain of that animal is maybe a quarter of the size of the head of a pin. It only has about a million neurons in it, and yet that animal is a fabulous dead reckoner. It dead reckons for hours at a time and does so under very difficult conditions. It lives in a very featureless desert, and it does not lay odor trails, and it travels extensive distances, the better part of a football field, from its nest, which is, of course, just a small hole in the ground, in search of food. When it finds food, it returns to that nest. If it found a big source of food, when it emerges from the nest, it goes straight back to the food it found. There's an extensive literature showing the really remarkable navigational abilities of these ants. And that literature shows very clearly that one very important aspect, by no means the only aspect, but one very important aspect of that animal's behavior is this dead reckoning process. Can a neural net do dead reckoning? Yes, 
with considerable difficulty. The difficulty arises precisely because a neural net lacks a read-write memory. Implementing dead reckoning in a standard computer with a read-write memory is literally child's play. I mean, you might assign it in the opening few weeks of an introductory course in computer programming because it's pretty trivial. And it's trivial precisely because you can easily write to memory where you're keeping the sum of the displacements, that is the running sum. And then when new data come in, indicating a further displacement, a further change in your position, you simply add the new displacement vector to this sum that's residing in memory. So if you've got a read-write memory, it's a piece of cake. In a neural net, you do not have a read-write memory, and we devote an entire chapter of our book to analyzing one of the more ambitious and influential nerve net models of the dead reckoning process. The essential message of the book is, look how difficult it is to implement this simple computation in this nerve net. Look at the enormous demands on neural resources that are being made by this implementation. Why is it so difficult to implement this computation in a neural net? And we say, well, it's difficult precisely because the neural net lacks a read-write memory. It's a beautiful illustration of the enormous price that you pay when you attempt to construct a computing machine without a read-write memory. Right. Let's go on to what I think is the most fascinating example in your book, which is the story of the scrub jay caching. Ah, yes. This is a beautiful experimental story. This is the work of Nikki Clayton and Tony Dickinson and their collaborating students. It's a wonderful story that they've been elaborating in a brilliant series of papers over the last decade. The basic story is that these jays, like many birds and many animals, squirrels, for example, is very well known, dogs bearing bones. But these jays make thousands of food caches spread over several square miles of territory in the high mountain habitat that they live in in Southern California. During the rather brief period in the fall when the nuts of a certain kind of pine tree are ripening and readily available, and then these jays live off of these food caches for the next six or seven months, that is, during the day, they fly around revisiting these caches and sticking their beaks down through the snow that wasn't there when they made the cache and into the ground and retrieving this small cache of pine nuts that they hid there months ago in many cases. So Clayton and Dickinson have brought this wonderful phenomenon into the laboratory and used it to ask what is it that these birds remember about these caches that they've made. And the answer turns out to be quite marvelous. They remember an astonishing amount. They remember, first of all, and for our purposes, perhaps most importantly, of course, where they made the cache. I emphasize again that they make thousands of these caches. So they are remembering thousands of different locations with very considerable precision, enough precision that they can stick their beak 
blind down into the earth and come back up with that cash. But the second thing is that uh, these animals actually eat many things besides nuts. They're omnivores like us. And like us, they have very definite preferences. They like some of this food much more than other food. Clayton and Dickinson have used that to show that they remember what they put in each one of these thousands of caches, right? That I put pine nuts here and I put the mealworms in that cache and I put crickets in another cache and so on. And when it comes time to retrieve these caches, they go uh, like your kids and my grandchildren, they go to the ice cream first. They go to what they like best, right? So that's how you can demonstrate that they remember what they put where. You let them cache some nuts and some crickets and some mealworms at different times. And then when you allow them to retrieve their caches, they go to the mealworms first. But they've also been able to demonstrate that they remember not only where they made each one of these caches and what they put in it, but they remember when they made the cache and they can compute. Keep in mind, this is a bird. Now, a bird's a lot bigger than an ant, but still the brains of these birds are a small fraction of the human brain. They can compute how long it has been since they put a mealworm in that particular location. The way in which Clayton and Dickinson demonstrate this is by experiments in which they artificially rot the different kinds of foods at different times. They take the mealworms after a few days and they soak them in formaldehyde, which of course makes them about as repulsive to the bird as is possible to be. So in effect, they teach the birds that mealworms rot in four days or three days or whatever, but that crickets only rot in 10 days and nuts, uh, they don't rot at all. And here you see beautifully what I'd said considerably earlier in the interview about the way in which information that you've acquired at different times is combined in your behavior. And we have learning because they can't possibly know any of that stuff instinctively since it's been artificially created. No, exactly. All of this behavior depends completely, well, not exclusively on, but it clearly depends upon a variety of information acquired from their experience, that is, learned things that they've learned, but information that they've acquired at various times. At one time, they learn how long it takes a mealworm to rot. At another time, they remember that they put a mealworm in that location. They put a cricket in another location and nuts in yet another location. Now it's time for them to go retrieve some meals from these caches that they've made. Well, now in their behavior at this time, they combine what they know about how long it takes a cricket or a mealworm to rot with what they compute about how long ago they put a mealworm in a given location. And if they put it there in less than the rotting time of a mealworm, then they go to that location first because they like mealworms best and mealworms are their ice cream. But if it's been longer than the rotting time of uh, a mealworm, and in fact they say, oh no, that ice cream cone will have long since melted and run into the ground. So then they go to the place where they put the crickets. But if it's been even longer than the rotting time of a cricket, say, well, then they eat their broccoli. Then they go to the locations where they put the nuts, which it turns out are their least preferred food form. This example is a wonderful example of how diverse information that has been acquired from very different experiences at very different times in the past 
and has been stored in memory is brought together in determining a decision that the animal makes at a given moment. And again, we use this to emphasize the fact that these diverse bits of information, physically speaking, cannot be the physical changes that encode this information in the brains of these birds. Those physical changes cannot all be adjacent to each other in the brain of that animal. And yet the animal's performance depends upon combining the information that is encoded in those different places. It's precisely that that leads to the need for a read-write memory, the need to have a relatively centralized computing apparatus that can go into memory and pull pieces of information from different locations in memory and combine them. So if we didn't have rewrite memory, how would we do something like this? Or how would the scrub jay do something like this? Neural nets use lookup tables? Well, yes, they do use lookup tables. But basically, they don't try to model this kind of performance. Many people who read the neural net literature are not sensitive to the various quite radical shortcuts and simplifications that are frequently taken in that literature. One of them is, this isn't true universally, but it's true in most of that literature, is that they avoid the problem of the fact that the information that's being combined at any given moment came from different experiences that happened at different times in the past. There's a tendency to just focus on problems where you can put all of the necessary information into a single vector that is presented to the computer, which is being used to simulate the neural net at one time and over and over again until the computer learns to generate the right response to that input vector. One of the things that we stress throughout the book is that that model just doesn't begin to capture what is going on in these everyday behaviors such as the one that we've been discussing. The animal only makes a given cache once. It uses a given location once and it's a very brief part of its experience, right? It arrives at that location with a beak full of food. It jams its beak down into the ground and leaves the food that it had in its beak in that place. And then it brushes the dirt a bit to sort of hide the mark. And that's it. It's all over in a matter of seconds. And then that bird arrives back at that location three months later. There's no repeated presentation of that information. And as I've just been stressing, the work of Clayton and Dickinson and their collaborators shows that the animal has remembered all kinds of different information about that very brief experience. It's remembered where it was, what the time was, what the food was that it buried there. And there's also a wonderful part of this. This is not really very relevant to the book, but it's so wonderful that I can't resist mentioning it. It remembers who was watching. Yeah. Yeah. As you might expect, moral issues arise in the rest of the animal's uh, world as well, right? And it turns out the jays are no better than humans. They're not above pilfering the other guy's food. So that if one jay watches another jay make a burial, the watching jay won't necessarily resist the temptation to uh, rob the other guy's cash. Jays are sensitive to this, or at least if they themselves have robbed the cash of another jay, then they become sensitive to the possibility that someone might steal your cash. 
So they remember whether another Jay was watching or not. In fact, it turns out they even remember which other Jay was watching. But they selectively go back and rebury caches that were observed by other Jays. So they remember an extraordinary amount about this brief, one-time experience. I want to take a moment to thank those of you who help support the Brain Science Podcast with donations and subscriptions. It is now also possible to help support the Brain Science Podcast by buying premium versions of new episodes. I'll be talking more about that later, but if you're interested in helping to support my work, please go to brainsciencepodcast.com and click on the tab at the top of the page labeled Donations and Subscriptions. And don't forget, every little bit helps. Randy, could you go over what some of the key assumptions are that must be challenged based on these experiments? Well, perhaps the most important thing is that when people are thinking about the nature of memory, they should stop thinking about the kind of Pavlovian conditioning experiments which have dominated neurobiological thinking about memory and think about the demands on memory that are made by dead reckoning and by this food caching behavior and by innumerable other behavioral examples of the same kind. None of these examples is mysterious if you grant the animal rewrite a memory. All of these examples are not computationally mysterious. It wouldn't be difficult to simulate these performances in a conventional computer. But it's very important to understand that the reason it would not be difficult is that we understand very well how to represent locations. We understand very well how to encode food types and so on. Most importantly, we understand how to encode that information physically in a computationally accessible memory in a conventional computer. There's no mystery about it. But if you try to do the same thing in a neural net, if you throw away the baby in the bath, namely the rewrite memory mechanism that is so fundamentally important in a modern computer, then trying to build a machine that can do what the Jays are doing or do what the ant is doing when it dead reckons, then it becomes extremely difficult. So the most important thing is to focus our efforts, our experimental and theoretical efforts on trying to imagine what the physical realization of such a mechanism that is a read-write memory must be in nervous systems. We argue in the book that this mechanism is as basic to computation as genes are to life. Understanding this memory mechanism, the read-write memory mechanism, until we understand that mechanism, we have no hope of understanding how the brain computes because that kind of memory is central to computation. This is the central argument of the book. And at the moment, we do not know what that mechanism is in the brain. 
we argue that there's good reason to think that it will prove to be universal just as DNA is universal. That is that it performs a basic, simple, foundational function, namely carrying information forward in time. There's no reason why a mechanism that works in one domain or one context wouldn't work in any other just as well. And therefore, there's no reason to assume that it's not a universal mechanism. But you think we need to look beyond the synapse? Well, there are a whole chapter, really a couple of chapters, devoted to why. I mean, the question arises, okay, so people are persuaded that it must be changes in synaptic conductance. Could this mechanism be mediated by changes in synaptic conductance? Well, yes, it could be. But for reasons we go into at great length in the book, it doesn't seem to us very likely that it is. It seems to us that once you grasp what the essential nature of the mechanism must be, then changes in synaptic conductance don't look very plausible or very attractive. It's not impossible. A change in synaptic conductance can be viewed as a change in the setting of a switch or potentiometer. And that's what you need to implement any memory system. You need something that has more than one physically stable state. But we point out that, look, synapses are way more complex than are actually required. I mean, individual molecules have exactly that property, like the rhodopsin molecule in vision. It's a perfect molecular switch. It has two different settings, an offsetting which is the normal setting, and an on setting, which is produced when a photon is absorbed by the molecule, then that literally changes the physical configuration of the molecule. It isomerizes the molecule in more technical language, and the isomerized molecule is now enzymatically active. That is, it's readable. It affects other physical processes within the cell. So here you see implemented at the level, which is many orders of magnitude. Another thing we try to get people to grasp is the difference in size between cellular level structures like synapses and molecular level structures like rhodopsin. Because if you implement the memory function at the molecular level, then you can put gigabytes worth of information into single cells. Whereas if you implement it at the synaptic level, you're going to be talking about kilobytes at most. So we argue that there are a variety of reasons. This isn't really the most important, but there are a variety of considerations that make changes in synaptic conductance not a very appealing story once you realize that what we're looking for here is a read-write memory mechanism. Since the argument that the brain has to use some sort of read-write memory is just another way of saying that the brain's got to follow the same rules of computations as a computer does, why is there so much resistance to this idea? That is a historically fascinating question. Fifty years from now, a hundred years from now, I think somebody will write a fascinating history of science focused on that question. Well, then maybe the fact that we've all been taught for the last hundred years that it's got to be the synapse and no one's even looking. Well, that's, of course, a very important part of it. The hardest thing for a science to overcome are these assumptions that have been taken for granted without good empirical evidence for a very long time, for many generations. The fact that they've been assumed by the generation before you 
becomes in itself a kind of um, deeply ingrained source of belief that it must be true. And it prevents you from scrutinizing the evidence for it. Although it's very widely acknowledged within contemporary neuroscience. We quote in the book uh, Christopher Koch, I was momentarily blocking on his name, though he's a very well-known computational neuroscientist, who has written a book about how the nervous system computes. Although he does not share Adam King's and my skepticism about the synapse, he's very forthright in that book in saying the idea that memory is a change in synaptic conductance is just the leading hypothesis, and the evidence for it is really not that strong. He's very forthright about that. And most neuroscientists, at least if they're not being challenged, would agree that the evidence that this is memory leaves quite a bit to be desired. This doesn't alter the fact that people believe that it must be memory and that someday we will have really strong evidence in favor of it. So that's certainly one very important part of it. Another very important part and closely related is that the associative theory of mind has enormous appeal and always has had. That is a kind of a theorizing about how the mind works that goes back all the way to Aristotle and is very strongly represented in the English, the Anglo-American philosophical tradition by John Locke and Bishop Berkeley and David Hume and so on. When you open up a psychology text in learning, what they're teaching you is the associative theory of learning. And in the associative theory of learning, memory is the associative bond, and there's a very direct and natural translation of that theory into neurophysiology. You just say, oh, well, what are associations? Well, they're changes in connection. Well, where in the nervous system do we see connections? Well, we see it at synapses, right? So where should we look for the associative bond? Well, we should look for it in changes in synapse. There's no question that that philosophical tradition and the belief in the associative theory of mind has heavily influenced this widespread conviction. But a third element, and you asked this wonderful question, but it has a, doesn't have a single answer. A third element is something I said at the beginning of the interview. Although computational neuroscience is a non-trivial part of contemporary neuroscience, it's a very small part in the bigger picture. If you go to the enormous meetings of the Society for Neuroscience, computational neuroscience papers account for, oh, I don't know, off the top of my head, perhaps 5% or less of the work that's being presented there. Most of the rest of neuroscience doesn't really think about the brain in computational terms. The history of neuroscience goes back long before the emergence of computer science, and computer science involves more mathematics and logic than most neuroscientists are comfortable with or have been trained in. Relatively few neuroscientists, broadly speaking, I don't mean to offend the many neuroscientists for which this is not true, but even those for whom it's not true would admit that the number of neuroscientists who understand what information theory really is, for example, is small. And they don't really think about the brain in computational terms. So computational questions have not been at the center of neuroscience. And one of the things we're trying to do in this book, I have to confess, I sort of despair of accomplishing this, but we're trying to get the neuroscience community in general to put computational questions more at the core of the discipline. The question of how does the nervous system add should be a central question in neuroscience, and it's not. 
we're trying to make it one. I like the fact that in the book you use the example of DNA and you compared our current state of ignorance in neuroscience to where biology was before the structure of DNA was discovered. It's funny because I was going back and reading my transcripts for other interviews I did this year, and I realized that Patricia Churchland had said during her interview, the philosopher Patricia Churchland had said something surprisingly similar to what you said. So there are people out there that recognize that we have this truly unanswered question, but it's not easy to tell when you read the average literature about the brain They give you the impression that memory's already figured out. Yes, they do. Scientists, I'm afraid, in general, are inclined to oversell things, particularly when they're speaking to a general audience. I mean, a general audience doesn't want to be told, here's something we don't understand, and here's another thing we don't understand, and so on. You know, you came to tell us all the things you don't understand? Come on, come tell us a story. So, of course, when talking to non-neuroscientists, neuroscientists like the rest of uh, the scientific world, tends to uh, tend that they uh, understand more than they really do understand. And the trouble with that is that, of course, you end up deceiving yourself as much as you end up deceiving uh, your audience. I know uh, I have a friend, Jennifer Groh, who's a neurophysiologist that records from individual neurons in the auditory system. And a couple of years ago, she was down giving a talk to us, and she came into my office. And the first thing she said was, you know, Randy, we really don't understand how the brain computes. I said, Jennifer, that is God's own truth. But I guess your book is really especially aimed at younger scientists because it's, in a sense, a, is a textbook without questions and stuff at the end, but to give us a fundamental basis so that maybe the next generation will be able to tackle these questions in a new way. That's very much true. The book is not marketed as a textbook, and as you say, it lacks most of the basic features of a textbook. But there is a strong didactic element in the book. Uh, We are very concerned to try to explain to students what computation is basically about. Students, particularly students in um, what's called cognitive neuroscience, they encounter a lot of talk about Bayesian updating and information theory and, and so on. But Both Adam King and I know from our own pedagogical experience that most of these students don't really, they've never had a basic, serious, ground-level introductory course to these words, these concepts that they are tossing around. Adam King is a computer scientist. The first half of the book in particular is kind of introductory uh, computer science for cognitive scientists and for neuroscientists. Uh, So it does have a textbooky quality to it. Well, I would say it's definitely not a light read, but definitely a worthwhile read. We've really kind of gone over time. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we close? I do have one last question I want to ask you, but I want to give you a chance. No, I think I think you clearly uh, deeply understood what we're trying to accomplish in that book, and you've uh, drawn out of me most of the things I would want to say. Do you have any advice, Randy, for students who are considering a career in neuroscience? Yes. As you said, the book is not a light read. Many people have written me about that. I had a message just the other day from some student somewhere who said, I just read your book and I liked it and so on. But he'd read an earlier book of mine on organization of learning. And he said, it's harder than the organization of learning. And that's true. It is. 
And that's because it has more mathematical content. But returning to the didactic thing that I was just talking about, the trouble is that a certain amount of mathematical content is simply unavoidable. If you want to understand a computational device, you simply have to understand information, and that requires a fairly deep understanding of probability theory, and you have to understand Bayesian updating. So my advice to students would be take mathematics, particularly take linear algebra, probability theory, Bayesian probability theory. That's where the field is heading. This is true both for cognitive science and for neuroscience. I mentioned earlier the book by uh, Rika and Van Stevenick and Bialik and so on. And if you think my book is a heavy read, that book's a considerably heavier read, but I think it's one of the more important books that have been published in neuroscience in the last several decades. They're drawing on the same mathematical sources that we're drawing on. And I mentioned that just to say, look, this is where neuroscience and cognitive science are headed. And if you want to do cutting-edge work, in these fields and prepare yourself to do that, then you need to acquire a basic mastery of the mathematical concepts in this area. That would be my advice to students. Because a lot of the leaders in this field started out in engineering for that very reason. That's absolutely true. (laughs) Where you see this very strongly is in vision, the neuroscience of vision. As you just observed, many of the leading practitioners started out in engineering because it's gone very mathematical. The pioneers in that field who really founded the field, most of them, not all of them, but most of them lacked the mathematical grounding that is now essential to do cutting-edge work in that field. And most people recognize that that field is the most advanced within neuroscience. So I think the entering students should take a look at that and say, hmm, well, that's where things tend to go. So if I'm preparing myself for the future, I better acquire some mastery of these relevant parts of mathematics. It's kind of ironic because 40 years ago, people went into biology to avoid math. Indeed. But I don't think you can do that anymore. And they went into psychology for the exact same reason, even more so perhaps than biology. Of course, it's possible to do. I mean, science is a very big tent, and you can do wonderful work with all kinds of different backgrounds. The thing is, if you don't acquire a basic mastery of certain parts of mathematics while you're a student, chances that you're going to do it later are pretty slim. Although in my own case, an awful lot of the mathematics that I've learned, I mean, I did get a basic grounding as a student, but I've learned a lot of mathematics long since I was a student. Still, my advice to the students would be... um, what was that inscribed over the those who know no mathematics should not enter here? I've forgotten the Greek. goes back to the days of the Platonic Academy. It's true in contemporary uh, neuroscience, I think, very much so, at least in behavioral neuroscience, where I think computational thinking is unavoidable. Well, and I think in almost every field, just because of the way data is being generated now, there's going to be no way around it. That's true, too. Randy, I have really enjoyed talking to you again. Well, I've enjoyed it. Me too. It's wonderful to talk with a reader who has clearly understood what you were trying to argue, and so it's always a pleasure. And I wouldn't want to take a math test on it, but I think I got the essence. Well, that's very gratifying because it seems clear to me that you did get the essence, and that's what we're trying to get across. So it makes me feel good that, well, 
we've gotten through to at least one reader, and I suspect you're very representative of the readers that we hope to reach. So that's very encouraging. Well, a lot of my listeners buy books after they hear people on the show, so I'm sure you're going to reach some more. I want to thank Dr. Galsta for being my guest on the Brain Science Podcast. Before reading his book, Memory and the Computational Brain, I had no idea why read-write memory is essential to computation, nor did I understand why cognitive neuroscientists feel that the brain is a computational machine. The principles of computation and information theory are such that read-write memory is an essential feature of efficient problem-solving. But traditional approaches to modeling neural processes, such as neural nets, do not include rewrite memory. Even a very simple computational problem, like dead reckoning, is difficult for a neural net. Yet we have clear experimental evidence that ants, which have tiny brains, can do dead reckoning. The example of scrub jay caching demonstrates that brains much less complex than ours can perform tasks that confound the neural net approach. Yet such tasks are simple to model if a read-write memory is assumed. Thus, Galstil and King argue that current assumptions about how memory works are inadequate based on at least two lines of evidence. First, they ignore the most basic principles of information theory and computation, and they are totally inadequate for explaining what even the simplest brains clearly do. I could probably devote an entire podcast to the implications of the experimental evidence introduced in this interview, but I only have time to highlight a few key ideas. First, without this growing experimental evidence, one might argue that brains don't follow the same rules of information theory and computation that are fundamental to computer science. But I think that position is becoming increasingly untenable. While the example of dead reckoning suggests that even the simplest brains do, in fact, have read-write memories, the scrub J caching experiment challenges a wide range of assumptions about how memory and learning happen. Dr. Gallistel alluded to the dominant influence of associative theories of learning. Associative models are based on repetition, but the scrub jays demonstrate the ability to remember large amounts of information based on single events. Of course, we do this all day long, so perhaps that should have been a clue that associative models were inadequate. Scrub jay caching experiments also highlight the inadequacy of the neural net approach. Dr. Gal still didn't want to focus on the problems of neural nets in this interview, but if you are interested in this particular aspect of the argument, I am including more about this in the premium version of this episode. We also didn't have time to give adequate attention to the problems of assuming that the synapse is the place memory happens. This is discussed thoroughly in the book, but the discussion is rooted in a deeper discussion of computation and why changes in the synapse do not represent computable information. That is clearly beyond the scope of today's conversation. Dr. Galstel mentioned the analogy of DNA, and I think that bears revisiting. 
those of us who have grown up since the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA may have difficulty appreciating how that discovery revolutionized biology. No one imagined the incredible amount of information that is contained on a strand of DNA. So when Dr. Galstell suggests that memory could be something on the molecular level, this suggestion may seem incredible, but so would the incredible amount of information content on DNA if you had proposed it to a scientist back in 1950. One thing that Galstell and King are very clear about in their book is that they are not proposing a new theory. Rather, they are arguing, persuasively, I think, that a new theory is needed because the present theory can explain the experimental evidence. However, coming up with new theories will require that the next generation of neuroscientists and cognitive neuroscientists adequately understand the basic principles of computation and information theory. Memory and the computational brain makes these principles accessible to a wide range of readers, and I highly recommend it to those of you with a serious interest in neuroscience. Even if you don't work in the field, this book will prepare you to better understand future developments. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback about this episode. You can send me email at docartemis at gmail.com or on the discussion forum at brainscienceforum.com or on our Facebook fan page. And don't forget to visit our website at brainsciencepodcast.com for show notes and transcripts. The best way to keep up with what's new is to subscribe to the Brain Science Podcast newsletter. That way you will automatically get the show notes for each new episode. These show notes will include links to the episode transcript and any websites mentioned during the podcast. To subscribe, just go to brainsciencepodcast.com. If you have an iPhone or iPod Touch, don't forget to check out the Brain Science Podcast application in iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, it's also a great place to find my other podcast, Books and Ideas. The next episode of Books and Ideas will be an interview with best-selling author Scott Sigler. Episode transcripts are available at booksandideas.com. Next month, the Brain Science Podcast will return to our ongoing exploration of consciousness. I will be interviewing German philosopher Thomas Metzinger about his book, The Ego Tunnel, which, as I mentioned before, is available at audible.com. I do want to give you a brief progress report on the new premium versions of the Brain Science Podcast. As I'm recording this, there are two versions available for all new episodes, starting with episode 65. There is a CD version and an MP3 download version. These premium versions are free from interruptions such as advertisements and announcements, plus they are divided into tracks, which many listeners find useful. And in the case of this episode, there is actually some bonus content. There are a couple things I hope to do in the coming months. First, I hope to gradually produce premium versions of back episodes. But since this will be a gradual process, I need your feedback about which ones to do first. Which episodes do you want? Which ones would you like to give to others as gifts? You can let me know by writing to me at docartemis at gmail.com or posting your suggestions in the discussion forum or on our Facebook fan page. Or if you're on Twitter, you can post your suggestion 
by tagging it with at Doc Artemis. Second, and I think this will probably be more important in the long run, I would like to create a premium subscription that will allow you to automatically receive whichever version you prefer. I'm trying to work out the logistics for this, so if any of you have experience in this area, I could really use your help. My goal is for the Brain Science Podcast and Books and Ideas to remain freely available to listeners around the world while producing premium versions so that I can afford to continue producing the show. I really appreciate those of you who help out with regular donations, but the reality is that you represent a tiny fraction of my listeners. In honor of my 100th podcast, I would like to make one other request. Please don't forget to share the Brain Science Podcast with others. Reviews in iTunes make a big difference, as does Twitter, or post it wherever you happen to hang out on the internet. And don't forget to send me your feedback. I would especially like to hear from those of you who may have written to me in the past, but who haven't written in a while. My email is still docartemis at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2010, Virginia Campbell, M.D., You can copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at docartemis at gmail.com.